Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name is Daenerys. And I'm Simon. And today we're sitting down with Professor Samir Pandya. Professor Pandya is an Associate Professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara and a prolific writer. His most recent novel, Members Only, was named one of NPR's Best Books of 2020 and was a finalist for the 90th Annual California Book Award in Fiction. His scholarly essays have been published in Journal of Asian American Studies, South Asian Popular Culture, and Amerasia. He has also written cultural commentary, which you can find in The Atlantic, Salon, Sports Illustrated, and other outlets. Professor Pandya earned his BA from UC Davis and his PhD from Stanford University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Yeah, thank you both for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, we're really excited too. So how did you first become interested in writing about the Asian American experience? Um, I mean, I, I went to, when I went to grad, when I was an undergrad, kind of Asian American studies departments were not really a thing. Uh, I think they were just beginning to get formed. Uh, when I was in graduate student, when I was a graduate student, while that idea was developing, I kind of did my graduate work in South Asian literature and kind of colonial discourse in South Asian literature. And kind of that is, you know, what I thought I had to do, right? But of course, the reality was I was actually living out in Asian American life. I was simply not using it as either the subject of my scholarly work or my, uh, my, my you know, creative fictional work. And I think, it was probably, I mean, it's crazy, but, you know, it wasn't until I was done with graduate school, I was in my first academic job, job teaching South Asian literature, that I suddenly kind of recognized that there was this entire archive of my own growing up in America, of friends of mine that I needed to look at and kind of really think about in both a scholarly and a kind of creative lens. And so in, in some ways, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I, you know, began to think about it as a subject, right? And kind of to think about what the word phrase means, Asian American, and who it includes, who it excludes, all of that stuff, I think, took me a little while to get to. Yeah, for sure. I have actually been reading your latest book, Members Only, and I think when, when I'm reading it, I can tell that there's definitely a connection between what you've been writing and your personal experience. So I'm really curious to know how much did you pull from your own personal experience in writing that novel? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, it is, you know, there is a way in which if this was my life and, you know, if this was kind of directly related to it, I think I would have written a memoir, right? And and you both know that the memoir form, particularly in the last 15, 20 years, has become in some ways the kind of the, the primary literary form uh, kind of competing, going head to head with the novel, right? And so while this kind of the, the things that happen to Raj Butt in this book are kind of uh, part of my own experiences growing up as being Indian in America. Of course, you know, I am simply not Raj Butt, right? I, I, I would hope to think that I am not Raj Butt, right? However, to your question, Daenerys, which is that if I wanted to write an honest book, which I hope I have, I needed to actually be honest about myself, right? To be honest about what it means to be racialized in this country, 
what does it mean to think about brownness as this kind of space that is neither black nor white. Um, so kind of that honesty was important to me. Um, in terms of the experiences I've had uh, on a college campus, uh, a lot of that stuff is kind of fairly autobiographical. I spent um, I, I spent years as a as a lecturer. I had an I had a tenure track job. I was an academic. I kind of had a early thirties crises when I was like, I I don't want to do any of this anymore. I want to go make myself into a fiction writer, which is what Raj does. Raj does not make himself into a fiction writer, but uh, he does have a little bit of a crisis. And so the, the, in, in that way, there are certainly kind of overlaps. I think the thing that I can say to you clearly is that the text, the novel is emotionally autobiographical. It may not be autobiographical in terms of events, in terms of characters, but the, the crux of what I think Raj is feeling, the crisis of belonging, the crisis of exclusion, the crisis of when you feel like you pass until you don't, are very much the crises that I have worked through in my 30s and 40s. And in some ways, they're kind of evergreen crises, right? They don't suddenly go away. You don't hit a certain moment and think, okay, I belong to everything I wanna to belong to. That moment just simply doesn't occur. Um, among a lot of the themes that you've written about, representation is a big one. So how is mm -hmm. your experience of the representation of Asian Americans and South Asian Americans in particular in American media, how has that experience changed over time for you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Which is that the, 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 I have two thoughts about this, right? Which is number one, representation is, is, is deeply important, right? Which is the, the, the feeling of being seen on your television screen, on in a book that you're reading, if you're a minority in this country, is a profound experience, right? It's because, you know, whatever you say about kind of these various media, th there is a way in which you feel less alone when you see a version of yourself kind of enacted on in these spaces, right? So in that way, it's been profoundly important. It is, you know, in some ways, uh, I, I had not read a book about an Indian man going through a midlife crisis, right? There is a whole tradition of white characters going through a midlife crisis, right? John Updike, John Cheever, Richard Ford, Richard Russo, right? You can name them. There are kind of a part of a pantheon of post-war American literature. So in that way, I was deeply invested in kind of getting this representation down and getting it as right as I could get it right, okay? But the related point I have is I also, the, the more that I have thought about this and the more I have realized that when it comes to these issues about what it means to belong to a nation, what it means to belong to a state, to a community, I don't think representation is the thing that fixes everything, right? So that more crazy rich Asian uh, sequels is not gonna solve a problem. Right? It's not going to solve the problem of anti-Asian violence. It's not going to solve the problem of kind of uh, universities, kind of the, the ways in which it kind of where certain students feel welcome and others of them do not. Right. And so representation is one key moment 
it is not the only moment, right? Which is that there is a way in which this kind of representation kind of coupled with some real deeper, deeply thought structural changes is kind of how we might think about shifting in my particular case, the ways in which South Asians in America are perceived and the ways in which they perceive themselves. So I think you are so right when you talk about how it's not just representation alone that can change things. I think we're in a strange moment really where you have these big movies coming out, Crazy Rich Asians, Shang-Chi, Parasite, but we've also had, we're in this moment where there's a lot of hatred against Asian Americans. And I'm really curious to hear how you think your experience as an, as an Asian American and particularly a South Asian has changed during this current moment, um, this spike in anti-Asian hatred. Yeah, well, that's that's a, it's an interesting question. So, you know, I came, I came to this country when I was eight years old. Okay, I I lived, I, I was born in India. I, I migrated with my family in 1980. We moved to the Bay Area, and there were Asian Americans. There were not huge numbers of them, right? So that my high school had, you know, besides me. I think two or three other Indian American graduates in a class of 600, right? Now imagine going to, I don't know, a high school in Santa Clara in the Bay Area. Uh, I think there are gonna be a few more Indian Americans graduating from those high schools, right? And so part of my experience uh, in terms of race, in terms of violence, in those kind of early years was in some ways the experience of being completely different, right? In a way, being illegible to the people that I kind of went to school with, right? Which is that there was kind of what, there is kind of a certain kind of legibility in kind of the experience of being African-American, the experience of being white in this country. In those early years, Indian Americanness was just hard to read, right? I think the moment for me in my adult life when that shifts is 9-11, right? Where after 9-11, there is a way in which brown nests and brown bodies become racialized in a radically different way than they were before, right? And I think one of the ways that I think about, um, you know, I teach in an Asian American studies department and the, the notion of Asian American studies is in some ways, it's an unwieldy one, meaning that you are dealing with the experiences of Southeast Asians who've come to this country in one particular way, of East Asians, of South Asians, right? So the question is, how do you talk about them together and how do you talk about them distinctly? Uh, and what I've realized is that while in this particular kind of COVID moment and this kind of anti-Asian moment, that has occurred in these last couple of years, right? Is while some of that is not directed at someone like me, what I do realize is that there is a direct connection to this moment to 9-11, right? This idea that you have two different kinds of Asian American groups, but with a very similar notion that when crises occur, certain groups get scapegoated, certain groups get kind of rethought their Americanness gets rethought, right? And so while I think my own particular experiences here have not kind of 
been radically different. I think that what feels radically different is we can begin to connect the dots among these different Asian American groups. And we all don't experience the same things at the same time, right? But I think the, the thing that we are all realizing is that we are going to experience them, right? And it's a question of creating or recognizing that these relationships are, or the, these dots need to be kind of, you know, brought together and uh, kind of, we need to kind of connect them in order to recognize that this is a much longer trajectory, right? It's a trajectory that begins in the middle of the 19th century. It begins with Chinese exclusion acts. It goes through internment, right? That you can make these, these historical moments. And I think suddenly you realize that it's not a disjointed narrative. It's a fairly clear narrative. So a lot of the flashpoints that you just mentioned took place in California, and I believe that all of us here are native Californians. So where do you kind of see the future of Asian Americans in this state? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Which is, I think oftentimes one of, if a part of this larger Asian American project is to recognize heterogeneity, right? To recognize that there are all sorts of different ways of being, right? One of the ways we need to think about this is to not let California be the, you know, the, the hegemonic experience, right? There, there are Asian Americans in the Midwest, there are Asian Americans in Texas, there, there's tons of Asian Americans in New Jersey, in New York, in Massachusetts, and all of these places, right? Which just tells us that, you know, you know, as a as a or as a writer, right? For me, I just want to hear all of those stories. I want to know what it means to be you know, Indian growing up in Texas as much as I want to know what it means to be Chinese growing up in Mississippi, right? Those are terrific stories. But you're totally right, you know, because, you know, Simon, about the, the, the question about California is that California is also deeply geographically shaped, right? This is a Pacific state. This is a state that is in some ways looking out towards the East, right? We're looking out towards East Asia. And that there is a way in which um, I, I, I think so much of what we understand as Asian American experience is based in the state, right? And I think that the way I would kind of rethink or kind of reconfigure your question is to just, for us to all collectively think about how sometimes we make assumptions about Asian American life when we're actually making assumptions about Californianness and Californian Asian, Asian American lives, right? Is because that's the thing, right? Like even uh, that, that there are these so many different things. With all of that said, I think a, we are of course generationally different, right? And so the Asian American experiences that two of you have uh, and that your kind of colleagues, or, you know, the, your fellow students have is radically different than mine, right? And we can all be growing up in the Bay Area or we can be growing up in the Valley in Southern California, right? And these demographics change so significantly. And I think it is kind of what's always interesting to me about why I love teaching is that you know, my students kind of you know, create a stress test on what I know about these, these topics, right? Because they, they have different ideas and I think, uh, I don't want to hear myself talk all the time. I actually want to hear you all and say, you know what? That sounds kind of like you're getting older 
and you need to rethink what these experiences look like. And I think that that's also something I want to keep in mind as well. So I really like the idea of having more diverse stories in terms of not only just ethnically, but also across geographies. And I'm really curious about the writing process. So when you're making this effort to um, express more diverse stories, what does the writing process look like? And how have you developed your writing process over time? No, this is, I mean, this is an interesting question, right, Daenerys, which is, you know, as, as a fiction writer, I am on one hand, deeply interested in mining my own experiences. And I don't mean that in a kind of, as a form of narcissism, I mean that as a form of the simple reality of the artistic process, right? Which is, you know, one of the things that I often say to my students is that, you know, it's great creating characters that are radically different from you. But what's really hard about that is that it's already so much work figuring out who you are. Figuring out somebody else is just some serious heavy lifting, right? So on one hand, I, I think uh, the, the, the writing process is, for me, has been shaped around you know, and this goes back to our representation question, right? Has been shaped around this desire to kind of represent the experiences that I have had, right? But what I also know is there's gotta be a limit to that, right? Meaning that, that I, I need to go inward as much as I need to go outward, right? And to recognize the, the, the different lives that exist out there, right? Now, I am not entirely sure uh, kind of the, the, the successes of my ability to tell those different stories. What I am sure of is that this larger set of conversations that we are having, right? The, 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 the fact that Asian American studies is being taught on college campuses more, that students are more interested in kind of dealing with these things that what I feel is my job and what I feel is the job of people that make movies, people that publish fiction is to recognize precisely the diversity of these voices, right? Which is that I think for me as a writer and my own writing process, uh, there is a, a universe that I have been creating and that I feel comfortable occupying, right? But at the same time, what I really want to do, and when I put my hat on as a critic, as a kind of, as a public facing writer, when I'm kind of talking about other novelists is to say, hey, look, this is the experience of someone radically different from me. And while I am not gonna write this experience up, what I am going to be able to do as a reader is try to explain to you as best as I can how this experience is very, very different, right? And why it is worthy of us talking about it together. Um, so on, on that note about uh, your writing style, uh, mm -hmm. which authors have most inspired how you write? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, there are a set of books that 
I think have always been important to me, right? And even Raj Butt in the book talks about it, right? Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison is a really important book to me. I read it at a particular moment in my life and I reread it at another moment in my life. And what Ellison is contending with, right? This question that he's asking, which is, you know, how do I kind of write about my very specific experiences, but also think about broadly these larger experiences that other people have, right? So Ellison has been deeply important to me uh, in terms of thinking about kind of this racial buildings room, right? Um, this novel is also deeply a campus novel, right? And one of the things that I noticed about campus novels is oftentimes they're not occupied by people like me, right? Which is the traditional campus novel has a uh, uh, oftentimes a white academic who's gotten tenure and has the crisis because he usually he is bored and doesn't know what to do, right? And um, so with all of that said, I wanted to think about what a different kind of campus novel would look like, right? But Richard Rousseau, who is a novelist that I mentioned earlier, is, um, you know, has a terrific campus novel called Straight Man, right? And when I was trying to figure out what this book would be, I kept thinking about this book as Brown Straight Man, right? And kind of what it would be to kind of rewrite it in that way. So these, those two books, I think, are hugely important to me. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to mention was not a book, but Key and Peele, right? And I think Key and Peele's tonal style in terms of how it deals and how the two of them deal with race and how to talk about race and how we don't talk about race and how we don't talk about class and gender. I mean, when they, I, I think they are rem a remarkable duo, right? And I know that um, Peele, of course, has kind of gone in a very, you know, he's gone horror in a very interesting way, right? He's talking about race uh, through that genre. And so, uh, but, but a lot of those skits I realized were kind of freed me up to also recognize that one way to really engage with quite really hard questions of race is to laugh and to kind of, you know, dip my kind of, you know, it's a phrase I use often, so it's just dip my toe in funny and what it would mean to think about these kind of really complex, difficult, heart-wrenching things um, while making fun of yourself all at the same time. Yeah, I can really relate to the key and peel, uh, key and peel point because as a white man, uh, I think that as a 14, 15 year old watching that, that was one of the first times I really began to think about race in a more critical manner. Mm -hmm. While still laughing, right? Yeah. And not knowing, and this is often the experience I had, I'm like, am I supposed to be laughing at that? I don't know if I should be laughing at that, right? And it's powerful is because it, it even creates discomfort and laughter, right? And, and they're, I mean, they, do, they did that job well. I love that earlier in that answer, you brought up um, Invisible Man by Ralph mm -hmm. Allison, because it's also um, kind of the backbone to one of my favorite books, which was which is The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to see that it's an influence on your writing as well. Um, and so I wanted to ask about uh, what advice would you give students who want to write their own book? In terms of a novel? Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, the advice I would give is, um, is write the book 
you desperately want to write as opposed to the book you think you should write, right? And I think I spent a lot of time trying to write a book I thought I should write. And I think when I was like, I have a book I really want to write and it scares me, things flowed. And I think they flow because they are, it's subject material that you've been gestating for a long time, right? You've been thinking through it. You've been talking to your friends or not talking to them. You've been doing all of this stuff. And then suddenly it all kind of comes out of you, right? And so what I would kind of, what I would recommend to, to you all is A, go ahead and do it. And B, if there's a part of you that makes you nervous, something about it that seems a little kind of hard to do, it probably means you're probably on the right track, right? It doesn't mean it's gonna work. It doesn't mean it's gonna be ideal on the first, first go around, but it does mean that it has a heartbeat. And for me, a heartbeat is the thing that leads you to the place you want to go to, right? Not a big idea, not any of that stuff, right? It's a story and a kind of an emotional tremor that you want to follow. That's unfortunately all the time that we have for today, but thank you, Professor Pandya, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Those were terrific questions. I really appreciate your time. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.